0: In the Bond movie Moonraker, his name was Hugo Drax. In the blockbuster Avatar, it was Parker Selfridge. And who could forget the villainous Dr. Evil of Austin Powers? In Hollywood, the characters depicting business moguls are only interested in intergalactic domination. But in reality? In reality, entrepreneurs like Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos are tapping into their vast personal wealth driven by a passion to accelerate space exploration. And in the process, they're revitalizing a listless national space program. Today, we'll hear from Professor Matt Weinzerl about his case entitled Blue Origin, NASA, and New Space. I'm your host, Brian Kenney, and you're listening to Cold Call. So we are all
1: sitting there in the
0: classroom. The professor walks in, and, and
1: they look up, and you know it's coming. Oh, the dreaded cold call.
0: Professor Weinzerl is an expert in optimal taxation and economic policy and the creator of an elective course at Harvard Business School entitled The Role of Government in Market Economies. Recently, he launched a new set of research projects focused on the commercialization of the space sector, and that is what pertains to this case today. Matt, thanks for joining me.
1: It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: Uh, I loved this case. Uh, I loved the opening. I wish you – can you set up the opening for us? Just describe what happens
1: in the beginning of the case. Sure. So Jeff Bezos is a fascinating character uh, in many ways, uh, but he fell in love with space when he was five years old, as I think many people of his generation did, when he saw Armstrong walk on the moon. And he carried that passion with him his whole life. He was always trying to make money to invest in going to space. And so the remarkable thing is that in 2001, just several years after founding Amazon, when Amazon was actually getting a lot of criticism from investors about its sustainability, he founded this secretive, nondescript uh, space company uh, with some of the money he'd made from Amazon and nurtured it over the next decade or more into what has now turned out to be one of the most prominent participants in the space sector.
0: Yeah, and we're going to talk about this new space sector uh, okay. in a bit. Uh, I'm curious, how does a guy who's an economic and tax expert come to write about space exploration?
1: The course that I teach called The Role of Government in Market Economies is all about this intersection between the public and private sectors right so when does the market fail us in either efficiency or distributional ways where we might want to get the government involved and then what are the risks of getting the government involved so it's all about that interaction and and i'd been searching for an industry where i thought that that intersection was particularly rich where i might be able to find some avenues into talking about some really interesting topics in a sustained way in one industry and it turns out Space is that industry. I mean, there's just amazing questions that are raised by really the tectonic shift that's happening in how we use space, how we think about space these days.
0: Pace does a great job of laying out sort of the evolution of NASA.
1: Maybe you can just
0: uh, give our listeners a sense
1: for, um,
0: you know, the ups and downs of NASA over the years and what brought us to this point.
1: Yeah, it's a really remarkable story. And I think it's very important to emphasize that NASA does amazing things. Mm -hmm. But NASA does have a a, a history of, of ups and downs, or I would say maybe one giant up And then sort of a steady stagnation, you might even say. So the Apollo program, of course, we all know in response to Sputnik, uh, a huge surge of optimism and engineering wizardry getting us to the moon in 1969. And at that point, NASA's budget was 5% of the U.S. federal budget. It's now one-tenth that. So now it's 0.5% of the U.S. federal budget. So the case has some really startling data on how Right after we got to the moon, public enthusiasm for spending that kind of money fell off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so NASA has struggled ever since, you know, in the 40 some years since then, to reinvigorate the passion uh, that the national security threat from the Soviet Union originally inspired. And finding that replacement inspiration has been a challenge. In the 70s, right after the Apollo program, there were some remarkable visions of what would be next for NASA. And NASA even held conferences on this where. They drew up plans for these spinning space colonies of tens of thousands of people with waterfalls and schools and fields. And I mean, it's really a remarkable vision that they were thinking, well, you know, we went to the moon in 10 years. What can we do in the next 100 years? (laughs) Um, And, of course, none of that happened, right? I mean, we we, we chose something much different, which uh, is sometimes referred to as sort of a space taxi, which was the space shuttle. Mm -hmm. Again, a marvel of engineering, but not quite the same power to inspire, and then and a couple of very bad uh, exactly events a couple that of tragic events that. as well. And then the the really striking thing that I did not realize until I started researching this case is that partly due to those shuttle tragedies, the shuttle program was canceled, uh, was scheduled to be retired around 2010. And at that point, the United States had no way to put a person in space. Mm-hmm. That really. I think, was the point at which the existing model that NASA had been working with just lost its credibility with mm-hmm. people. They felt like we needed something different. NASA itself, I think, felt like it was time to try something different. And that's really how NewSpace got its, uh, its kickstart.
0: So uh, describe NewSpace. What does that mean? That's not a company? That's <laughs> It's a, not. It's that? a
1: sector, I guess you'd say. Yeah. It's a group of companies. It's basically this collection of firms, many of which are funded and led by tech entrepreneurs like Bezos or Musk or Paul Allen or Richard Branson who are hoping to disrupt this model of how we use space. And I think what's so interesting about new space and something of a misconception about how space activities have worked over these last 40 years, I think I thought when I got started in this research that NASA basically did everything. Built all their rockets, built the space shuttle, went up to the, you know, to the space station, and that's really never how it's worked. NASA has all has, has always built comparatively little of its own stuff. It contracts out mm-hmm. to the big aerospace engineering firms, Northrop Grumman or Boeing or Lockheed. But NewSpace has its own goals. Uh, new space companies, have their own goals for these technologies, Mm -hmm. whether it's space tourism or the colonization of Mars or the launching of commercial satellite systems for telecommunications or Earth imaging. They have their own reasons to go to space. And then NASA is trying to leverage... Uh, what they can do, what these Mm -hmm. private companies can do to better achieve its own goals. So it's really about not so much a shift in the scale of commercial activities in space, but a shift in the nature of the relationship between the public and private sector. Mm
0: Yeah, and this is part of the tension that exists, right? It's that drive, it's the, the drive of commerce mm-hmm. and, and commerce pushing things forward, but at the same time, questions about motives. Uh, so I look at the Bezos and Musk's yeah. and the, are, are they modern day Carnegies and Melons, uh, or, or are they driven by something more intrinsic? <laughs> and do you know? You may not know. I
1: don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's a great question. You know, people in the space industry say they are so lucky to happen to be born and working in this industry at a time when it just so happens that our billionaires are passionate about space. right? <laughs> like, what are the chances that they would get this huge infusion of money into an area that hasn't really been about profit per se in mm-hmm. the past? Now, you know, Bezos is a fascinating story. He's obviously always been deeply passionate about this just as a person. His high school valedictorian speech was about the imperative of colonizing space. Wow, Right. So he's always been there. On the other hand he's also I mean why is he Jeff why is he famous it's because he had an incredibly long-term vision for what Amazon could be even just from a commercial perspective mm-hmm. right so Amazon changed the world in non-commercial ways but it also made a lot of money it's making a lot of money and so how does he think about Blue Origin is it purely as some of his critics say kind of a rich man's hobby or he has sort of non-economic goals almost for society or for the preservation of the human species, which is one reason why many new space entrepreneurs say that they think we need to colonize other planets, whether that's because of climate change or nuclear war or whatever, that we need a backup planet, so to speak. Or is it more of a commercial motive? I mean, he has very explicitly developed some of their technology to cater to the tourist market Mm. for sending people up into space for a brief period of time. And and that could be an enormous market. I mean, it, it I'd could describe be a that because you,
0: you talk yeah. about that in the case. What, yeah. what are some of the modifications that he's made to their their space vehicles?
1: You know, there are various people who have been interested in sending humans up into space for a few minutes to get weightlessness, uh-huh. it's supposed to be quite an experience, and then to see the curvature of Earth, which astronauts typically describe as one of those life changing moments when you yeah. really see the planet. And so, there's been a lot of interest in tapping into that market. Uh, As we mentioned in the case, you know, Bezos, the way that Blue Origin has tried to develop that product has been very customer focused, just like the Amazon experience is very customer focused. And so what that means concretely is that the windows, that the clearest indication of this is that the windows are just enormous in the capsule that would hold the people. So you'd go up on this rocket, this capsule would be released and would float in space for a bit. And each person in the pod would have their own window, which is the largest window. Everybody gets a window seat. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly, and it's supposed to be sort of airplane level of transparency. So it well, it promises to be a remarkable experience for the actual passenger. Um, And of course, we're you know still probably a few years away from that actually happening. But the progress has been remarkable, and so I think he really you know if you run back of the envelope calculations in terms of how many people might be willing to spend how much for that once in a lifetime experience, you can get to some pretty big numbers.
0: Blue Origin has had some success, and you talk about it in the case. They've been able to uh, get closer to that holy grail of a reusable machine, something that can take off and land and be reused. But now they're faced with this pretty difficult question. So NASA has found a way to uh, accommodate working with new space companies by changing their procurement process. Mm -hmm. Uh, They've made changes on their end, and, uh, and that opens the door for Blue Origin to bid in a project that would change the nature of the relationship yeah. with NASA.
1: That really is the decision point of the case. That's really the heart of of the case study that we do in the classroom, which is uh, NASA, in the early 2000s, as they saw the need for a new vision or for a new model, so to speak, started this program called the COTS program, the Commercial Orbital Transportation Services Program. And that was this idea that instead of, NASA contracting with traditional contractors to resupply the International Space Station, it would have a new model of contracting with these new space companies where, specifically, instead of doing a cost-plus contract, which tended to raise costs quite a bit, Mm -hmm. it would do a fixed price where NASA's just another customer kind of model with these new space companies to resupply the space station. That worked very well. It's generally viewed as a huge success. And there has been now commercial resupply of the space station. Um, by SpaceX and by Orbital ATK. The next step in that was to think not just about transporting food and supplies to the space station on commercial spacecraft, but actually astronauts. Mm. And so that was the Commercial Crew Development Program, which is the focus of the case, or CCDEV, as it's called. And as one of the case protagonists uh, says in the case, crew changes everything. Like yeah. Once you think about putting actual people on these vehicles, it's a whole new ballgame. And so CCDEV was a multi-stage program. The first two stages were pretty small-scale, little seed funding for different space companies to develop technologies. Blue participated, uh, Blue Origin participated in both of those rounds, and everyone thought they were great. Win-win for Blue and NASA. And then this third round that you just spoke of uh, came to the fore, and that was for essentially a soup-to-nuts proposal for how to get the astronaut from the ground to the ISS and back again. And... For Blue at that point in its developments is around 2012, that would have required a pretty dramatic change in the company. So the president uh, mentioned that for them at the time, uh, Rob Meyerson, the president of Blue, said that that would have more than doubled the company they had. And it not only would have meant scaling up the firm quite dramatically, they had the funding. I mean, Bezos is fully funding the firm. It's not so much a a question of money. It's partly a question of management, but it was also a question of priorities. And Mm -hmm. I think this gets to your Previous question about why is why is Bezos so interested in this, and so from a strategic perspective for the students, uh, one of the questions to think about is if you're running Blue Origin and you know that you have these goals, these whatever Jeff Bezos's goals are about, you know he wants to help millions of people live and work in space. He wants to follow his vision for how to get there, and then NASA comes to you with this opportunity, which is quite attractive in many ways. There's going to be a lot of money on the table, um, but also you. Retain your position as sort of the center of the space ecosystem mm-hmm. uh, by participating. How do you make that trade off? How do you decide whether to stand aside and try to chart your own path versus stay as a part of the cent- a central part of that mix? How do students uh, react to this case in the classroom? You know, it was extremely satisfying. So I taught this case and then a second case on the new space sector, which is about this Singaporean startup called Astroscale that's trying to solve a problem most people don't spend much time thinking about, which is space debris. So it turns out low Earth orbit is very congested with lots of pieces of metal flying at incredible speed. (laughs) We
0: found a way to pollute even off the planet. It's
1: amazing. Very in just a few short decades, (laughs) which was dramatized if you've seen the movie Gravity with the piece of metal hitting their spacecraft. So it's there's a lot of debate about how gr- huge a problem that is and, and so on. But this, their student response to these two cases, which we did back to back, I can honestly say I've never had more enthusiasm from the students. I mean, coming up afterwards saying, this is just fantastic, like, it's so interesting. Thank you for writing cases on this sector. Yeah, I think it's time for a sort of more concerted effort to build up a little bit of a suite of cases on this industry that students who are really deeply interested in can engage with.
0: Yeah. And it sounds like you may be inspiring a a new generation of MBAs who look at this as a career option, right? I mean,
1: I would love that. I'd love nothing more. I mean, uh, you know, I started my course for students who see themselves as leading institutions of some systemic importance, maybe having a role in the policymaking process. And so the students who come to my class tend to be naturally very interested in this intersection between the public and private sectors. And those students are also perfectly positioned to go into the space industry going forward because you, you have to care about policy. You have to be an intelligent and subtle thinker about the role of government to do well, I think, in the space sector.
0: Matt, thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure,
1: Brian. Thank you. You can find this
0: case along with thousands of others in the Harvard Business School Case Collection at hbr.org. I'm Brian Kenney. Thanks for listening to Cold Call, the official podcast of Harvard Business School.